This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, welcome to a special episode of Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan. It's the end of the year, so let's relive some of the best moments from the show in 2021. On this week's Best Of, we revisit some of the conversations we had on political economy, media and similar topics in the US and in Malaysia. On the first half of the show, I'll be playing clips from a couple of episodes I did with Peter Beattie, who is an assistant professor in global political economy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Now, the 2020 US presidential elections was billed by many as the battle for the soul of America, the progressive left-wing Democratic Party slugging out to defeat the right-wing racist, xenophobic, conservative Republican Party led by the all-evil Donald Trump. Joe Biden's win was celebrated as the victory for the progressives. But what if it's all just a performance? What if the United States of America actually has two right-wing parties? Here's a snippet of the conversation I had with Peter Beattie. Well, because if you look at uh, a number of issues, but the biggest one would be foreign policy or military policy. Uh, there isn't that much difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party when it comes to the use of of the war machine, the, the military industrial complex. Uh, there are different factions within uh, the foreign policy establishment in the US, AKA the blob uh, in DC. Um, but you, know, you have uh, a broad consensus on most foreign policy issues. Uh, and that is that goes across Republican and Democratic Party. So that's really the main reason why I don't think it's accurate to call either of those two parties uh, left wing, because nowhere else in the world is it a common, normal part of political conversation to discuss uh, what country to invade or what country to begin bombing or what country to put under crippling economic sanctions that kill uh, lots of civilians. So this is a fundamentally uh, right wing characteristic of both parties, the, the militarism of both parties. Um, but I mean, there are plenty of other examples like uh, in terms of immigration policy. You know, if you look at the number of people deported under Barack Obama's administration, it was greater than the number of people deported under the George W. Bush administration and, of course, the Trump administration. Uh, if you look at health care policy, uh, you'll have at least some people within the Democratic Party arguing for uh, a more, you know, a, a basic civilized healthcare system that all other rich countries in the world and lots of, of not so rich countries in the world have been enjoying for decades now. Uh, but neither party, including the Democratic Party, is really uh, uh, pushing seriously to shift the system to one that covers everyone. And uh, the reasons are, are basically the same. But for those are the, the three main policy areas I would, I would point you to uh, to understand why I don't think it's accurate to call the, the Democratic Party a, a left party on a global spectrum. It's only left-ish in the U.S. spectrum. But Peter, um, many will point to, to the fact that, there, you know, when, when it comes to um, what, what is being um, said or, you know, the, the ideologies um, taken up by these political parties, um, people will say that um, 
you know, yes, they may have um, similar military uh, policies and all of that, but perhaps that's just the American way. Uh, I mean, we, we say it's uh, obviously it's wrong, but, you know, that's just an American thing. But uh, apart from that, you know, when people will say that, you know, if you look at the Democrats, they are very, they have very left-leaning um, social ideologies. People will say uh, the Democrats, for example, are not racist. Um, they are not xenophobic. They are pro-choice uh, when it comes to abortion. Um, they are pro-LGBTQ um, um, marriages, for example, uh, LGBTQ rights. Well, I think that's a, a fair point. I just don't think that the, the mostly it's just rhetoric. You know, you have a lot of Democratic politicians and Democratic Party operatives who will use kind of social justice rhetoric and uh, uh, kind of uh, woke posturing uh, when they're talking about the rights of, of women, uh, sexual identity minorities, ethnic minorities, et cetera. Uh, but when it comes down to, to policy, I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of change in terms of LGBT rights. And so that's, you could point to that as a, a concrete example. Uh, but when it, in general, it's really just rhetoric. There's very little policy uh, that actually gets implemented to really improve the lives of uh, historically disadvantaged groups like, you know, again, women, sexual identity minorities, ethnic minorities, immigrants, et cetera. Uh, so, yeah, in that sense, the Democratic Party uh, is more left-ish, uh, but it's just in that one little area of, of social issues. Uh, and even there, I wouldn't I wouldn't be too confident or, or comfortable saying that they're they're really truly left on social issues because a lot of it is just uh, is just rhetoric that excites a certain uh, part of their base to come and vote for them. Um, but you know, when it, when you ask, you know, what are the actual policies that are that are implemented beyond what has been done to kind of uh, uh, give marriage rights to LGBT people? Uh, there's very little by way of you know concrete action that you could point to and say, ah, yes, well, at least on social issues, the Democratic Party is truly left. Um, and, and my broader point, though, is that when you compare the importance of, of social issues to the importance of, of military power, you know, when you're talking about military, war and peace, uh, you're talking about human lives lost. Uh, that's a very different level of seriousness than when you're talking about you know, even ending forms of discrimination against uh, traditionally oppressed or historically oppressed minorities. So if that's the case, then what's the difference between um, Democrats and the Republicans? You know, we talk about rhetoric, political posturing and, and you know, riling up certain parts of their base, right? Um, but if, if they're very little that differentiates um, the, the Democrats and the Republicans in terms of policymaking, in terms of changing the lives of, of the average Americans, then what exactly are the people going to the ballot box for and voting? So I think what the, the people are voting for in the uh, Republican Party, you know, if some people, a minority, I think, that are that are voting uh, from, you know, like white nationalist ideas or, you know, they, they watch uh, Fox News and they think that the, the white population is under threat and the white population is oppressed. And so there, you have a minority thinking in those terms. You have another part of the party that really just cares about business. They think that the Republican Party is better because they reduce government regulation and they reduce taxes. Um, you've got a lot of people in the Republican Party that vote for them solely because of the issue of abortion. If you really do believe that abortion is the exact same thing as murder, 
uh, then that is your predominant issue. Just like you know, I, I mentioned before, I think military policy is far more important than social issues uh, in the U.S. Well, for these people, they think the exact same way because they think that abortion is murder. So they'll only vote for Republicans just because of that one issue. Um, I guess you've got others who, who think in a broader uh, uh, religious sense that they think that the Republican Party is is better on the religious issues that matter. That includes abortion, but it also includes, you know, the Republican politicians don't talk so much about gay rights, so they like that. So you've got this kind of coalition of, of different groups that vote for the Republicans for different reasons. And it's the same or similar in the Democratic Party. Uh, again, just like with the Republicans, you've got different groups that vote for the Democrats for different reasons. So you also have uh, a section of the economic elite, the wealthy, that vote for Democrats because they think that the Democrats will be more responsible stewards of U.S. capitalism, and they will favor the the, the industries of the future, tech, internet, uh, pharmaceuticals, et cetera, biotech. Um, and they, they recognize that uh, the rich should pay a, a, a higher proportion of their income and perhaps even wealth uh, because they also want to have a, a more or less balanced budget. So you do have uh, people voting for the, the Democrats for kind of from a pro-business perspective. They just have a different understanding of how the economy operates and what policies would be good for you know, the economy. Uh, and you also have activists who, who vote in the for the Democratic Party, people that want uh, more social justice, uh, and they vote for the Democrats because they support uh, more abortion rights. Uh, they're better on LGBT rights. Uh, they they support a, a slightly better social safety net. Um, they uh, are they're rhetorically better on immigration, and the Democrats all often promise, you know, we want to do immigration reform to make lives easier for immigrants. But again, I would point out the difference between rhetoric and policy that you can see very clearly when you when you look at the uh, Obama administration's record versus George W. Bush administration's record. Mm -hmm. um, so my, my point is not that my argument isn't that there aren't any differences between the parties. My point is that within the U.S., people are kept ignorant of the, the kind of true range of political options. They're shown in TV and newspapers only a very truncated, small portion of the, the true range of political debate. So within that small range, they see differences between the parties, particularly on in, in rhetorical terms uh, and, and kind of cultural signaling terms. But they're not aware of the, the true range of possibilities on economic policy and certainly kept unaware of the range of possibilities on foreign policy and military policy. And so that's why you have uh, people like uh, Gore Vidal, he put it uh, really brilliantly, I thought. He said uh, the, the U.S. has one political party, the property party, with two right wings, the Republicans <laughs> and Democrats. And even better than that, uh, uh, the Tanzanian uh, politician, Julius Nyeri, uh, said, he put it, the United States is also a one-party state, but with typical American extravagance, they have two of them. <laughs> <laughs> That was a snippet from an episode titled How the US Ended Up with Two Right-Wing Parties. Peter also joined me on the show this year to talk about the US media system and how it isn't just Fox News that is spewing fake news as many often talk about, but the likes of CNN and MSNBC as well. First of all, how would you describe what a main, mainstream media is? And among them, which is the worst to you and, and why? 
Oh, that is such a tough question. Well, the second part is very tough. The first part is <laughs> easy. So I would de- define uh, mainstream media as basically mass media, the, the media outlets that reach millions or even tens of millions of people. And the most used media source in the United States today is still local TV news. And you'll get very little actual information from local TV news. Uh, they're typically half-hour programs with commercial breaks. So there's maybe 20 minutes of a half hour available for, for actual news content programming. But a lot of that is geared towards, you know, attracting eyeballs. So they'll have, you know, human interest stories that have no real political value, but uh, which are entertaining. And so they, they attract people to watch them. Um, then you've got your cable TV news, which don't get as many viewers, but the, the top programs on cable TV news attract a few million people every night. So you've got your, your Tucker Carlson shows on, on Fox. You've got your uh, uh, Rachel Maddow show on MSNBC. And, you know, these are, I would also call them mainstream and mass media because they're, they're reaching at least, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And then lastly, I'd include in there uh, the major national newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, maybe even one of the, the conservative newspapers like Washington Times. I don't know what its circulation is, though. Um, they also have a big internet presence. So, you know, the, the internet has a lot of promise for being a kind of democratizing medium, but still on the internet today, it's the old legacy media companies that dominate. The same companies that dominate on, on TV, cable, and uh, newspaper space also dominate online. And then lastly, also I would call uh, certainly mass media is the, uh, the, the right-wing radio uh, space that still gets millions of people uh, to tune in. So it might not be mainstream in the sense that, um, but I, I don't know if it makes sense to, to disqualify a media source because it's only you know viewed by Republicans or Democrats now. Right. The whole system is so polarized. So I guess instead of mainstream, I would just call it mass yes. uh, media. So that's the the the, the easy part of the question. <laughs> Yeah, the, the easy part of the question. Remind me again what the difficult was. Which is the one. worst among the mass media? Oh, good God. So I, I vacillate between uh, whether it's it's Fox or, you know, what people call the, the liberal media, so your CNNs and MSNBCs. Now, Fox is the obvious answer because there's, there's definitely more outright misinformation uh, on Fox, the, the, you know, promoting of conspiracy theories about uh, uh, conspiracies against Trump that weren't real. Then there were actual conspiracies against Trump that were real, and those were covered seriously on CNN and MSNBC under the, the heading of Russiagate. Um, but you also have a lot of uh, fear-mongering about immigrants, uh, which gets a lot of attention because it's a nice, simple story it touches on our, our uh, psychological biases, in-group bias. Uh, it, it explains economic suffering in a way that, you know, it only takes a sentence or two to explain, whereas an actual explanation would take a lot longer. So, you know, first I would point at Fox, but then, you know, there's also a good argument to be made that the uh, MSNBCs and CNNs are actually the most deplorable. And it's because, uh, I think it was Montesquieu had this, he wrote something where he said, you know, the, the worst form of injustice is the injustice that's perpetrated under the color of law. Because if you are, uh, you know, facing domination or exploitation or, or some other crime being committed against you, 
the first place you go to, to seek redress is the law, the courts, that the justice system. That's supposed to be where you know you get you get help. But if you go to the the, the, the courts and then you know it's like you're a drowning person and somebody uh, reaches out a plank of wood and you think, oh great, I'm gonna grab onto this plank and they're gonna pull me up. But instead of doing that, they use the plank to smack you on the head and try to make you drown faster. Well, that's the worst kind of injustice. So I, I kind of feel like it's similar to the, the MSNBCs and CNNs because they should be playing the role of an alternative to Fox or the antidote to Fox. But instead, what they've become is just the mirror image of Fox. So Fox is basically a propaganda uh, mouthpiece for the Republican Party. And CNN and MSNBC have evolved into the, the mirror image, which is essentially just a, a mouthpiece for the Democratic uh, establishment. You just described um, CNN, MSNBC, and the so-called liberal or the, the, the media that promotes Democratic Party's agenda um, as, as equally terrible. But why do you get um, quote-unquote um, educated people, people in our bubble, let's just call it that, you know? Um, why do a lot of people still hail CNN and MSNBC as this gold standard of journalism? If, if you look at uh, Fox and are horrified because you, you have enough information about politics to be able to tell that this is very misleading at best uh, propaganda a lot of the time on this channel, then it's understandable if your impulse is, let me just find the opposite of that, and then I'm going to embrace whatever the opposite of that is. And likewise, if you look at, if, if the information you have uh, leads you to look at the MSNBC and CNN programming, especially, you know, during the whole Russiagate fiasco, and you look at that and think, this is absolutely absurd, this is clearly uh, a conspiracy theory with very little basis in reality, but these journalists are, are treating it seriously. Let me, let me just go to the opposite of that. And then you can, you know, when you're, when you're looking at the media in that kind of a binary uh, framework, then the, the evils of one side push you to adopt the other, embrace the other side and kind of blind you to the, the possibility that both sides are horrible in their own different ways. That was Peter Beatty, who's an assistant professor in global political economy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, on an episode titled, Is the US Media System Broken? All right, we do need to go for a very quick break. Now, when we come back, we will continue reflecting on the best of Today I Learned in 2021. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and today we're having a listen to some conversations on the show surrounding political economy, politics in general in the US and in Malaysia. Before the break, I played clips from conversations I had with Peter Beatty, Assistant Professor in Global Political Economy um, at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And the clips I played were centred around US politics. Now we're going to be keeping it local um, or local issues. I'm going to be playing some clips with Arvind Kadir Chilvan. He's the youth chief of Party Socialist Malaysia. And one of the shows we did earlier this year was on how young people are suffering. I mean, youth and unemployment rate has been on the rise. Salaries have stagnated for close to 20 years despite the massive increase in cost of living. Cost of education is at an all-time high. Uh, most people find themselves in massive student debts. Now, the question we asked was, what if all 
of these are natural causes of capitalism? And could socialism be the solution? I think, firstly, in history, uh, even Marx would say that capitalism is something that uh, was somewhat, quote-unquote, destined to happen or uh, somewhat will happen because of the relations between the feudal lord and and the peasantry, basically. But But was that good? I, I wouldn't cast a value judgment on that, right. mainly because uh, what it grew out of was this kind of, uh, it didn't really replace the, uh, the the structure that feudalism had, basically, where uh, the person who uh, owned a lot of capital or owned these means of production was the one that uh, capitalized on the uh, amount of value that is generated. So, uh, historically, was it a system that worked? I wouldn't say that it did. It's just a system that happened. So, does it work today and what is the main problem of capitalism? I think the principal critique of capitalism from uh, socialist analysis or Marxist analysis is the very fact that those who expand labor, as in those who, those who uh, uh, work to change raw materials into goods and now it's more to services, are not the ones who enjoy the amount of value that they create. In fact, this value is owned by someone else who owns the business, who owns the machinery, the means of production, land, whatever, and they themselves divvy out uh, a portion of that value to the to the worker. So the person who does not expand any labor, who is only at a place where he can take advantage of the labor of others, because he, uh, they have owned capital before, is the one that is gaining more, gaining the disproportionate value from the worker without any input from workers, essentially. That is the principal argument of uh, an economic problem that uh, capitalism produces, essentially. This unequal uh, relationship that is unequal in two terms. One, unequal because one person has a lot more money and a lot more power, and another because the person who doesn't have money is the one who works the most and does not get uh, his share of, uh, of value. We accept that, yes, these are the people who are going to like build factories, stuff, but on whose money? You know, how did they get the money in the first place? How did they obtain the capital? Capital doesn't fall from the trees. You know, you have to create and generate value. And the generation of value is by the input of labor. Without the la- without labor, you won't change uh, silicon into handphones, right? So you need people to, like, expand that labor. And by expropriating the value that is created by that labor is how capitalists accrue capital, enough capital to then uh, put out into the uh, so-called free market and uh, create these uh, sort of jobs. One of the common arguments um, we hear um, uh, in defense of capitalism is that it's a system that rewards hard work, that under capitalism, everyone who keeps their heads down and hustles their behinds off, you know, will be able to elevate their lives materially. And without the system of capitalism, um, these capitalists um, argue that, you know, what you will get is a society of people who are just lazy, um, people who don't want to go to work at all, because there isn't this sort of engineered competition that, ca- that capitalism creates. So what are your thoughts on this? The profit derivative that capitalism types off of is a smokescreen, basically, because essentially this kind of like competition with each other is caused by only a small number of people actually own the capital. So people who are like us uh, are left to like compete with each other to sell the only thing that we have, which is labor time, to uh, gain a little a sliver of what the capitalists have to offer, basically. 
so this whole thing of you just have to work hard and you will make it is is this this pipe dream that capitalists give us because when you think about it right how much time of how much how many hours would you need to work to gain a billion ringgit it is like hundreds of years 200 years you need to work 24 hours a day it is nonsense hard work does not get you there what gets you there is expropriating labor of others so that you generate the value from the products and services that they create and then you take that in this way the system of capitalism is uh, thriving off of the back of uh, people working hard yes people working hard but not to enrich themselves they work hard to generate value that someone else thrives off of was giving them the crumbs uh, that are left on uh, on their plate when they're done and we have to think about the concept of work itself basically because what capitalists uh, say is that um work can only uh, exist if there is a profit narrative to it as in only when uh, you are uh, forced to do the work because without it you will starve then uh, and then only will people be uh, what do you call the push to do the work basically but we have to question this like is that really true um uh, people people uh, gain a lot of uh, a lot of fulfillment from general, uh, from expanding labor on something that they love to do you know some people like like saying a dance some people like to write and they can't do that because there is no profit there then they have they are forced to go into something that generates wealth uh, for themselves but actually it's like generating wealth for the capitalists basically but if there was a system that enabled them to exp- uh, to what do you call that expand their labor in something that they really wanted to do that i believe and we all will believe essentially that they would do that because that is what they love to do and we have to separate this concept of labor only being tied to material gains rather than this kind of like innate spiritual need that people uh, uh, would seek seek for basically a capitalist would argue that Yeah, but if we just let people do whatever they want to do, what if whatever they want to do isn't what society needs to perhaps survive, to endure, to move forward, to prosper, to progress? Hence, why we need you no know, people slogging it out in factories. Who makes those like uh, what do you call that? Those value judgments, basically. You know, you're not allowing society to choose. what they want to do you think for example uh, let's take for example society needs to eat bread you know we they need food they need grains you think society doesn't know that uh, you think like society doesn't doesn't think about these things oh, okay i need to like go i, I need this agricultural producers to be available for me to eat they do so if we do not allow the uh, society itself to organize itself to understand what are the needs for itself and so people who are interested in producing these things and go in do it rather you as a capitalist make those decisions on their behalf that is an extremely uh, parochial thing to do essentially um and, and if capitalists were so uh, concerned about the well-being of the masses then let the masses decide what they wanted to do in the first place how who made you king basically to like decide this is what you need i am producing this much rice for you not for me and not don't look at the amount of money that i'm making i'm making sure that rice is available to you. that's nonsense basically this kind of whole notion of i'm doing this for your own benefit is extremely condescending towards the ingenuity of masses is is capitalism as in the private ownership of capital the only way to create jobs 
can people not come together, work together to like, you know, generate value? If you look at the cases for in, in, in places like Argentina, where the private owners of factories essentially like decided they didn't want to run them anymore because it wasn't profitable, workers got together and formed collectives to run those factories by themselves. And there was no private ownership. There was a collective ownership of the means of production because all workers there were equal, basically. So this notion of I need to exist for this whole system to uh, for, for this whole like jobs to be created for the value to be created is not true because we there are alternative systems that we have seen that where that has worked very well even better sometimes than privately held firms uh, which proved the fact that it is not necessary for you to exist for capitalism to exist for these jobs and values to be created essentially that was a clip from an episode titled Young People Are Suffering, Is Socialism the Solution? Now, on a very, very similar note, Arvin returned to the show to discuss why millennials in Malaysia can't afford to buy houses. Here's a snippet from our conversation. The main thing is that cost of housing has increased much higher than our wages have. So if we take, for example, between uh, 1990 and 2019, we see that there is an increase of uh, housing price of about 460%. Uh, in the same period, you have a GDP versus uh, um, per capita income increase of 180%. Mm. So you see there is a huge discrepancy between uh, the growth of the economy uh, and the growth of wages versus uh, the growth of uh, of. of of housing costs essentially. And because of that uh, imbalance, houses are now uh, many times more expensive than uh, we can actually afford it. Even uh, basic housing that they that are so-called low-cost housing or affordable housing, hmm. uh, sometimes it's out of the... Um, um, out, out of the uh, realms of possibility for many people. If we take, for example, uh, you, when you look at uh, housing prices currently in Malaysia, mm. a number that is usually uh, touted out is 300,000 ringgit, which is said to be the benchmark for low-cost housing. Sometimes it's 400,000, but let's keep it to 300,000. Right. So you think about 300,000 ringgit, you take a loan to pay for that uh, that house because no one has 300,000 ringgit in their bank. Mm -hmm. So you take a loan and the monthly mortgage for that would be around 1,000 to 1,300 ringgit. If you take, if you look at the median wage for Malaysia, it is around 3,000 something ringgit. So that is about 40% of your salary. Who can afford that? That is an, a, an unimaginable amount of money to pay for the most basic house. So 50% of people in Malaysia find it impossible to uh, own it uh, as a sing as a single shareholder of course if you're married then that's a uh, uh, you have a second household income as well but you think about it this is supposed to be for the b40 so if you look at the uh, median household income for the b40 that is around the same around about 3000 ringgit in fact it's a little bit lower mm -hmm. So much so that uh, the housing uh, for 300,000 ringgit, uh, the monthly mortgage would be again 41% of their income out of the realms of possibility. Even for the most basic uh, housing unit, most of us find it very difficult to actually own it. What more, uh, more expensive houses on the market? Certainly. And what you brought up is very, very interesting. And it's very important. I think it needs to be highlighted that, you know, when we, when we say like most of us, you know, we cannot afford the 300,000 uh, ringgit house and all. And when you look at people within, you know, the, the so-called bubble, people like to talk about the English speaking educated and, and so on and so forth. People our 
age in the in their twenties, even late twenties, even their thirties, in our bubble, are trying to and, and struggling to buy a house that costs three hundred thousand ringgit. So what more people who are on the much much lower wage spectrum? And I think this is this is what we are trying to talk about, right? So when we think about buying and selling, right, Arvind, um, we always we often talk about this idea of supply and demand. That's how we most people understand, um, you know, consumers, uh, uh, you know, behavior and, and all of that. But in Malaysia, the demand for housing is incredibly high. Like we just talked, everybody wants a house. If you are a working adult, you want to buy a house. But the supply is also high. Housing development projects are growing like mushrooms. Every single day, every single week, you can even when you use like social media or whatever, you will see new ads about new development projects and new development projects. And, and, and if, but the thing is, if you drive around any neighborhood, at the same time, you will also see plenty of houses that aren't occupied, that aren't being sold, yet there are more houses being built. So, there, you know, the, the, the demand is there. There, is, there seems to be, the demand is there, the supply seems to be in excess, yet people cannot afford to buy a house, especially in the city. Why is this the case? So... Actually, it's very interesting. So if you look at the supply, mm-hmm. uh, if you look at the number of unsold houses, there's, uh, the, the amount is staggeringly high. Mm-hmm. There's 42 billion ringgit worth of unsold houses. So that's around like 50,000 houses uh, or so, basically. Uh, so technically, there are houses that are available. But if you break down the the, uh, the the type of houses, only around like 30% of these houses, out, uh, est- a rough estimate of 30% of these houses are at the 300,000 and below mark. Hmm. Uh, so more than 70% uh, or near 70% are above this 300,000 mark. So you, so if you look at it in that way, it, it comes down to affordability. Can you afford to uh, get these houses in the first place? Can you afford the monthly mortgage? And more importantly, can you afford the deposit that goes into uh, 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 the down payment for the house, mm-hmm. essentially? So if you look at all of these factors put into uh, like put into stock overview, you can see that even though there are houses that are available on the market, they cannot be sold because people cannot afford them. And so you look at, uh, that's why you have uh, luxury homes that are targeting the external market or things like the Malaysia My Second Home program, uh, selling it to uh, wealthy um, white people or you know uh, other uh, from other Asian countries, for example. Uh, and the the overhang is e- made even worse during the uh, COVID times because this market is no longer available. People from overseas cannot come in and buy houses here anymore. Hmm. So again, you have a glute of uh, houses that are available that local people cannot afford and now you cannot sell to uh, overseas people. So there is a, the, that's why when we look at the economy, you can't really just see it as, as a, a purely supply and demand because there is a, another aspect in there which is uh, scarcity, right? So like, and also um, availability to buy, basically. Mm. Just because there's supply and there's demand doesn't mean uh, you can afford to get that supply, basically, in the first place, which means you are not the targeted consumer. You, uh, Someone else is the targeted consumer. And then from there, there can be a secondary market, which we get, which you will see as we go along in this discussion, basically. And that is something interesting. So I do want to get into that, right? Because what you brought up, you know, there... There are houses in excess, you know, billions of dollars worth, 
but yet there is this hope. You know, there is homeless issue. There are people that cannot afford to buy houses. Um, people struggling. Um, even struggling to pay rent, and, and you know, and, and all of these things. So, who are the houses made for if it's not for the people? So, that's a very interesting question. So, there, 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 there are loads of people that houses are sold to. We look at it. In, we let's start at the primary market. So, primary market is developer to consumer. Hmm. So, uh, from the developer to consumer, the developer wants to make a profit and they try to maximize this profit. That's why the houses are priced so highly. So, they sell to people who can afford to buy it. So, these people are not. Uh, those who cannot afford the 300,000 ringgit, these are in the uh, top 50%, they can afford 500,000 ringgit, they can afford even more. So some people buy uh, more than one house uh, as an investment uh, to sell, uh, to either sell at the secondary market later on at a higher price or to uh, uh, generate another income stream in the form of rent, basically. And these are the people who are being targeted uh, for this uh, kind of houses. It, actually, if you go to developers and then you see these new housing units a lot of the time what they say is this what they what they would say is this house is near the lrt station or is near many amenities not so you can access these amenities but because they're saying that means when it is built speculatively the price is going to be very high in the future so buy it as an investment the trend is higher now essentially and because of that people who have access to this capital. And that doesn't mean people who are already rich. You know, These are people with income and can get loans to back up their, uh, what do you call it, their, them buying this house. Uh, these are the people who are being targeted to. People who need the house at the lower income, uh, the B40s, the people who need, uh, what you, who cannot afford to pay exorbitant rent, who properly need houses that are not priced at 300,000 ringgit, who are not even priced at 100,000 ringgit maximum. Those people do not get the houses because those people you cannot make money from those people. And developers care about profit more than they care about, well, they only care about profit. They don't really care about much else, basically. Right. So, you know, who controls the housing market? Because you brought up um, investment a couple of times there. Um, you know, you hear this a lot, um, you know, among even among peers and all of that. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm going to buy this house and then I'm going to give it out for rent. I'm not, not so I can live in it. I'm just going to buy it or I'm going to buy. And then like you mentioned, you know, the LRT station is going to be built there, completed in five years, then I'll sell the house. You hear this a lot. Is still a bad thing? Um, it's, I would say overall, yes, it is a bad thing. Mm. Um, but let's look at the factors here that, that push people to do so, basically. Um, in When we talk about affordability of anything, uh, focusing on housing at the moment, but affordability of anything, there are two elements to it. There's one is the price of the thing and the other is the income of the people. So when you take into consideration Malaysia, we are generally an income-depressed country, mainly because we are a third-world trade uh, country that has to provide services and goods to uh, countries in the global north at a lower price. That drives our economy generally. That means wages are stagnating and are smaller in Malaysia. So even people who can afford these houses, they generally would need would try to get a second income uh, just so they are in a more comfortable place. That is the kind of mentality that drives people to look at housing as an investment. But because they look at housing as an investment, they create a demand, uh, a higher demand 
for uh, for from developers of housing that they can then later on rent out. Basically, that means the prices of housing from developers rises because there is an increased demand, and because there is an additional level of uh, profiteering put on by. Uh, the person buying the house to sell in the secondary market or to rent out in the secondary market, the overall price of houses that is available increases as well, basically. So much so that people cannot, normal people with wages uh, like you and me cannot really afford houses uh, to buy them. Uh, They uh, tend to only uh, be able to afford houses as a form of rent. But even rent, right? So rent is another parasitic entity because the amount that is uh, being rented for is much higher than the mortgage that is being paid for the houses. That is where the profiteering comes in. That means it would be generally cheaper for me and you to buy a house and pay the mortgage. But because the housing prices are so high, because we cannot afford deposit as a down payment for this house, we cannot buy the house in the first place. The only option is to rent. So at every point, there is this kind of parasitic entity to, to suck out more uh, money from us. Uh, and that is generally caused by a drive for more financial security that is driven by uh, the uh, uh, third world trade economy in the capitalist global hegemony that causes wages to be depressed, basically. So people are, some people, like uh, uh, people who are just just earning a little bit more than us, mm. who can afford these houses, they are said to be forced to do this just to ensure a level of financial security. I can understand that mentality. It's still wrong. It still causes a lot of problems such as homelessness and uh, what do you call that? Uh, increasing uh, costs of uh, housing. Um, but there are also another class of people with a lot of money and uh, 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 what they do is they see this as uh, an opportunity to flip houses or to take more loans against uh, what do you call the property that they own and generally what they, this is called leverage so this is very interesting okay. so a lot of capitalists what they do is they have property portfolio on their hand that they do not outrightly own but they kind of like are still paying off the loans right but they can take secondary loans off of them because they are quite interesting property they are speculatively high and what they do is they live off of these loans and the reason they do that is because they don't need to pay income tax on loans because that is a debt right so uh because they don't want to pay income tax on earned income uh, they didn't take out these loans as a form of income for them so they can spend money on themselves and they keep doing this until they die basically so it's like uh just take loans take loans to pay loans indefinitely until you die and then when you die you don't need to pay loans anymore this kind of like capitalist hegemony is there that drives uh, prices up as well solely to the benefit of capitalists essentially that was Arvind Kadir Chelvan, Youth Chief of Party Socialist Malaysia, on the episode titled The Millennials Can't Afford to Buy a House. What's the solution? Well, that's all the time we have for today's show. If you'd like to check out the full episodes from any of these shows highlighted, they're all available on podcasts. You can find them on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. Just search Today I Learn Podcasts. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learn, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.